Welcome, everybody, to History Analyzed. I'm your host, Mark Palmer. This is a podcast which examines historical events and issues. The event we're analyzing today is Watergate, the most famous presidential scandal in U.S. history. The term Watergate has become part of the American lexicon. We use the suffix gate to indicate any scandal. I think that most people are familiar with the term Watergate as a reference to the scandal that brought down the Nixon presidency, but I don't think a lot of people know what the term Watergate actually meant. The term comes from the Watergate complex. This is a group of buildings in Washington, D.C., located along the Potomac River in a neighborhood known as Foggy Bottom. The Watergate complex included separate buildings with a hotel, offices, and apartments. In 1972, the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee was located in one of those offices. On June 17, 1972, a security guard named Frank Wills noticed that somebody had put tape over the latch of a lock on a door in the parking garage of the Watergate office building. The latch is the spring-loaded metal part of the mechanism in a door lock that protrudes out of the door. The security guard didn't think much about it. It wasn't that unusual because cleaning people sometimes did that to make their lives easier as they were going in and out of particular doors. So, Frank Wills removed the tape and went about his rounds. When the security guard returned about a half hour later... The tape was over the latch of the door lock again. He knew that the cleaning people had already gone home for the night, and so it could not have been the maintenance crew. He immediately knew that this was criminal activity and called the Washington police. When the police arrived and started checking the building, they caught five men in the office of the Democratic National Committee. These men were later identified as James McCord, Bernard Barker, Virgilio Gonzalez, Eugenio Martinez, and Frank Sturgis. These men had connections to Richard Nixon's re-election campaign. Time for a very short biography of Richard Milhouse Nixon. That middle name might sound familiar to you if you were ever a fan of the Simpsons TV show. Yes, that's where they got the name for Bart's best friend, Milhouse. In real life, Nixon got that middle name of Milhouse because it was his mother's maiden name. Nixon was born on January 9, 1913, in his parents' home in Yorba Linda, California. Nixon is the only president born in California. Except for Nixon and Barack Obama, who was born in Hawaii, all of our presidents have been born in the eastern or central time zones. The western half of the country has not been well represented. Since I live in Southern California, my wife and I recently visited the Nixon Library in Yorba Linda. The house where Nixon was born is still standing in the same place where it was in 1913. You can tour the house. The Nixon Library is on that same property. Nixon and his wife Pat are both buried on the grounds. I would highly recommend any history lovers who are visiting the Los Angeles area to visit the Nixon Library. It's excellent. And I think they try to be as objective as possible. There's an entire room dedicated to Watergate, and they do a good job outlining the entire scandal. Let's get back to the short biography. His early childhood was spent on a lemon farm. When he was about 9 or 10 years old, his parents sold the lemon farm and moved to Whittier, California, where they operated a grocery store and a gas station. He had four brothers, no sisters. Nixon worked at the grocery store and gas station along with his siblings and his parents. He was very smart and hardworking. He was accepted into Harvard but could not go because of financial reasons. 
He was needed at the store. So instead of Nixon going to Harvard, he went to Whittier College, where he graduated summa cum laude with a BA in history. He then went to law school at Duke University. After graduating from Duke Law School, Nixon practiced law as an attorney in Southern California. He married a local young woman named Pat Ryan and later had two daughters, Tricia and Julie. In World War II, Nixon was an officer in the U.S. Navy and served in the Pacific. In 1946, Nixon was elected as a member of the U.S. House of Representatives. He was only 33 years old. His career moved along very quickly. In 1950, Nixon was elected to the Senate. And in 1952, Nixon was elected as Vice President of the United States, serving under Dwight D. Eisenhower for two terms. Nixon was only 39 years old when he was elected and had just turned 40 when he was inaugurated as Vice President. In fact, Nixon is the second youngest Vice President in U.S. history. I know you're dying to know who was the youngest, and that would be John Breckinridge, who served as VP for one of the worst presidents in history, James Buchanan, just before the Civil War. Breckinridge was only 36 years old when he became Vice President. To put that into perspective as to how young that is, the minimum age to be president or vice president is 35. The requirements to be vice president of the United States are found in two places. The last sentence of the 12th Amendment states, but no person constitutionally ineligible to the office of president shall be eligible to that of vice president of the United States. So that means we need to see what are the constitutional requirements for the president. Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution reads as follows. No person except a natural-born citizen or a citizen of the United States at the time of the adoption of this Constitution shall be eligible to the office of president. Neither shall any person be eligible to that office who shall not have attained the age of 35 years and been 14 years a resident within the United States. You might have noticed that Article 2, Section 1 requires that if for a person to be president, he or she must be a natural-born citizen of the United States. But that section makes an exception for people who were citizens of the U.S. at the time of the adoption of the Constitution, which was 1788. The reason I bring this up is there is an erroneous myth that one of the greatest founding fathers, Alexander Hamilton, could not be president because he was born on the Caribbean island of Nevis. But it's not true. Hamilton was eligible to be president. He moved to New York in 1772 and was a citizen of the U.S. when the Constitution was adopted. So the next time you hear or read that Hamilton could not have been president of the U.S. because he was not born in the U.S., you can call B.S. and explain why he qualified under Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution. Getting back to Nixon. 40 years old was very young to be vice president. After serving two terms as Eisenhower's VP, Nixon decided to run for the presidency in 1960. He lost an extremely close race to John F. Kennedy. In the popular vote, Kennedy received 49.7% and Nixon got 49.5% of the vote. You can't get much closer than that. Two years later, Nixon decided to run for governor of California. He was beaten in 1962 by the Democrat candidate and incumbent, Pat Brown. After being beaten in his run for the presidency and then for governor of California, 
Most observers thought that Nixon's political career was over. It seems that even Nixon thought his political career was over. Throughout his career, Nixon always thought that the press was out to get him. He hated the news media. At times, he let it show. In one of his most famous quotes, Nixon told a press conference right after he lost the 1962 California gubernatorial race. Last point. I leave you gentlemen now. <laughs> and uh, you will now write it. You will interpret it. That's your right. But as I leave you, uh, I want you to know, <laughs> just think how much you're going to be missing. You don't have Nixon to kick around anymore. Because, gentlemen, this is my last press conference. Now that it seemed like his political career was over, Nixon and his family moved to New York City, where he practiced law. He did not run for president in 1964, but he did decide to run in 1968. He was involved in another incredibly close election, but this time he won, beating the Democrat candidate vice president, Hubert Humphrey. Richard Nixon was now president. In 1972, he would win re-election in a landslide. Fun fact, Nixon is the only American to be elected vice president twice and president twice. In 1972, Nixon destroyed the Democrat candidate George McGovern, the senator from South Dakota. McGovern won Massachusetts and Nixon won every other state. It was an incredible victory, but Nixon could not enjoy the biggest triumph of his political career because he knew that the Watergate scandal was a ticking time bomb which might destroy his presidency. There are many tragic elements about Watergate. Obviously, one aspect is that it was so unnecessary. There was no reason to do illegal political espionage in 1972 when it was obvious to most people that Nixon was easily going to beat George McGovern. Another sad part of the whole Watergate affair is Nixon actually accomplished a lot of good things as president. I try to be objective when I assess somebody's career, and Nixon has a lot of good achievements. Domestically, he achieved the following. Number one, Nixon established the Environmental Protection Agency in 1970. Yeah, it was Nixon. The Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and the Mammal Marine Protection Act were all passed under the Nixon administration. Number two, in his State of the Union address in January 1971, Nixon requested $100 million for a war on cancer. The National Cancer Act was passed later that year. Number three, Nixon signed Title IX in 1972. That was a civil rights law preventing gender bias at any educational institution receiving federal funding. It opened up collegiate sports for women. Number four, Nixon oversaw the desegregation of Southern schools. And number five, Nixon became the first president to give Native Americans the right to tribal self-determination by ending the policy of forced assimilation and returning some of their sacred lands. Although he achieved a lot domestically, it was in international diplomacy where Nixon really shined. His biggest diplomatic coup was visiting communist China in February 1972. Ever since the People's Republic of China was declared in October 1949, the United States did not have any diplomatic relations with the largest country in the world by population. By the 1970s, the Soviets and the Chinese were no longer getting along. 
By establishing relations with China, Nixon and later administrations could play China and the Soviet Union against each other. Nixon became the first American president to visit the Soviet Union. And more importantly, on May 26, 1972, while in Moscow, Nixon signed the first nuclear limitations treaties with the Soviets. The biggest event of the Nixon presidency was the end of the Vietnam War. On January 27, 1973, the Paris Peace Accords were signed. Very broadly, the terms were an immediate ceasefire, armies from North Vietnam and South Vietnam would hold their positions, U.S. troops would withdraw within 60 days, and prisoners of war would be exchanged. I don't give Nixon and National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger too much credit for this peace agreement in January 1973, because I believe they could have gotten this deal much earlier. One of Nixon's main campaign promises in 1968 was that he would end the war. But after he got elected, the war dragged on for another four years so that the U.S. could have what Nixon called peace with honor. But I don't know how this was peace with honor. Most government officials and military observers understood that the South Vietnamese could not hold out on their own once American forces left. We knew that the peace was not going to last. In fact, by the time the last American combat troops left Vietnam on March 29, 1973, fighting had already resumed. Once the U.S. pulled out, it was only a matter of time before South Vietnam was conquered. And that's what occurred two years later. I'm sure you have seen those heartbreaking photos and videos from April 1975 of American helicopters removing from Saigon the last Americans in the South Vietnamese capital, along with a very small fraction of the Vietnamese people who had worked with the U.S. forces throughout the war. Many of the South Vietnamese who had cooperated with the U.S. were left stranded in and around Saigon when the communists took over the city on April 30, 1975. Those poor people ended up in concentration camps, which the communists euphemistically called re-education camps. Don't get me wrong, I don't think that they should have been holding out for peace with honor. I think that they should have accepted this reality and ended the war much sooner. So Nixon does deserve some credit for ending the war, but it's just my belief that he could have gotten these terms four years earlier and many thousands of American lives, not to mention Vietnamese lives, could have been saved. Everybody understood that South Vietnam was not going to be able to stand on its own without the U.S. troops. And I don't simply blame Nixon for extending the war. Obviously, we will never know. But it's my belief that if Lyndon Johnson had told the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong that the U.S. would pull out provided we could have our POWs returned, it's tough to imagine that the communist forces would have turned down such an offer. So I blame Johnson because he could have ended the war during his presidency if he was just willing to admit defeat. The problem was LBJ and Nixon did not want to be the first American president to lose a war. But by late 1972, Nixon understood that there was no winning that war and that the U.S. simply had to get out. That's why I believe the U.S. could have gotten the same peace terms anytime during the latter part of Johnson's presidency or Nixon's first term. They just had to face reality that this was an unwinnable situation. 
In case you're thinking that the South Vietnamese would not have agreed to such a deal during Johnson's presidency or during Nixon's first term, my answer is this. Once the U.S. made the decision that we were pulling out of Vietnam without a victory and we were going to leave South Vietnam on its own, there was really nothing that the South Vietnamese government could do to stop such a peace settlement. How do I know this? Because South Vietnamese President Nguyen Van Thu and his government did not want to agree to these terms in January 1973, but they signed because... The South Vietnamese could not stop America from pulling out its troops, and they wanted to stay on good relations with the U.S. so they could continue to receive U.S. financial aid. Now that I've told you about some of the good things that Nixon did, let's get into the illegal activities which brought down his presidency. And before I go into the Watergate scandal, I have to point out that it's not the worst thing he did in his political career. Much worse was what he did in the fall of 1968 when he was running for president. By 1968, the Vietnam War was a disaster for the United States. Most people held Lyndon Johnson responsible since he was the president who had overseen the massive escalation of the war. When John Kennedy was assassinated and Lyndon Johnson became president, there were approximately 16,000 American troops in Vietnam. LBJ greatly increased the U.S. involvement in Vietnam to a high watermark of 536,000 American troops in 1968. In an attempt to salvage his legacy and to possibly help the Democrat candidate Hubert Humphrey win the presidential election in 1968, Johnson tried to end the Vietnam War through peace negotiations. Richard Nixon sabotaged those negotiations. How did he do that? Through a liaison named Anna Chenault. Who was Anna Chenault? Her late husband was Claire Chenault, who led the Flying Tigers, a volunteer group of American pilots fighting against the Japanese in China during World War II. Anna was born as Chan Shang Mai. When she married American Claire Chenault in 1947, she adopted the American first name of Anna. She was a big fundraiser for Nixon and a leader of a Republican women's group, and got to know Nixon very well. During the 1968 campaign for the presidency, at a meeting with the South Vietnamese ambassador, Nixon told the ambassador that Anna Chenault was his personal representative to South Vietnam. Nixon told the ambassador that he would relay messages to the ambassador through Anna Chenault. Through Mrs. Chenault, Nixon advised the South Vietnamese government that they should not participate in any peace negotiations in the fall of 1968 because they would get a much better deal once he was elected president. As a result, the government of South Vietnam boycotted any peace negotiations that Lyndon Johnson was trying to arrange with North Vietnam and the Viet Cong. Now there is evidence that Nixon actually did this. There are handwritten personal notes by Bob Haldeman, Nixon's future chief of staff, that Nixon was directing Anna Chenault to keep working on the South Vietnamese. On October 22, 1968, during a phone conversation with Nixon, Haldeman's notes include Nixon's orders to keep Anna Chenault working on South Vietnam and also say... Any other way to monkey wrench it? Anything RN, meaning Richard Nixon, can do? 
The notes also show Nixon wanted to have nationalist Chinese businessman Louis Kung separately pressure President Tu to boycott peace negotiations. Before I go any further, I do not believe that Lyndon Johnson would have been able to end the Vietnam War in 1968, even if Nixon was not trying to sabotage the peace deal. Johnson did not want to be seen as losing the war and would not have accepted the terms eventually reached in 1973. So I don't think that Nixon's meddling in 1968 changed history. However, what Nixon did amounts to treason. At the time, Nixon was a private citizen who was merely running for office. He was sabotaging the foreign policy of the U.S. government during a war. Nixon was trying to prolong the war with who knows how many more dead Americans for his own personal gain. Lyndon Johnson knew what Nixon was doing at the time it was happening. LBJ complained to Republican Senator Everett Dirksen, with whom Johnson had a very good working relationship, about Nixon sabotaging the potential peace talks. In a phone call with Johnson, Nixon denied everything. As I mentioned earlier, the 1968 race was incredibly close. In the popular vote, Nixon got 43.4% and Humphrey got 42.7%. Third-party candidate George Wallace received 13.5% of the vote. If Johnson told the American people what Nixon was doing, this might have swayed enough voters that Hubert Humphrey could have won the presidency in 1968. So why didn't Johnson do this? Well, it's because LBJ had something to hide. The reason Johnson knew what was going on is because LBJ had ordered the tapping of the phones of the South Vietnamese embassy. For Johnson to convince the American people what Nixon was up to, he would have to explain how he had obtained definitive proof. President Johnson did not want to admit to the public that he was spying on America's allies. Now that you have all of that background, let's discuss the actual Watergate scandal. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, the police arrested five men for breaking into the Democratic National Headquarters at the Watergate office building on June 17, 1972. The police immediately knew that this was not a typical burglary case for several reasons. For one, all five men were wearing business suits. A second reason, the burglars had phone taps and listening bugs. And one other reason, they had hundreds of dollars of cash on them. And this was at a time when that was a lot of money. The five men gave false names, but a possible connection to the White House soon emerged. The men had keys to hotel rooms at the Watergate Hotel. When their rooms were searched by the police, an address book was discovered. In the address book was a telephone number for Howard Hunt at the White House. The police also discovered an envelope from Howard Hunt to his country club with a check for just over $6 for some dues he owed. Hunt had asked one of the burglars to mail it for him. So there were two ties to Howard Hunt. But who was he? There are way too many people involved in the Watergate scandal for me to get into in one podcast episode. But I'm going to try to give you the main characters as they come up in this narrative. E. Howard Hunt 
had previously worked for the CIA. He was involved in the CIA's overthrow of the democratically elected president of Guatemala in the early 1950s. In 1961, he was involved in the CIA's plan to overthrow Fidel Castro by landing Cuban exiles at the Bay of Pigs. In 1971, Hunt was hired by Nixon's special counsel, Chuck Colson, to be part of the White House Special Investigations Unit. Howard Hunt and G. Gordon Liddy were the ringleaders of that unit, which came to be known as the Plumbers. What were the Plumbers? Officially, they were called the Special Investigations Unit, or the Room 16 Project, but everybody called them the Plumbers. How'd they get their name? One of the members of the Special Investigations Unit was a man named David Young. At Thanksgiving in 1971, his grandmother asked him what he did for the White House. David Young replied that he was helping the president stop some leaks. Young was referring to information leaks, but his grandmother took him literally and said, Oh, you're a plumber. Young told Howard Hunt and Gordon Liddy the story, and they loved that name so much that they put up a sign on their office that said, The Plumbers. They were told to take the sign down since they were supposed to be a top secret group. The Plumbers got their start in the summer of 1971, a year before the Watergate break-in. On June 13, 1971, the New York Times began publishing the Report of the Office of the Secretary of Defense Vietnam Task Force. Nobody remembers it by its official name. The report came to be known as the Pentagon Papers, and that's what everybody calls it today. The Pentagon Papers was an enormous report of the history of the U.S. involvement in Vietnam from 1945 in 1967. The Pentagon Papers showed that the U.S. government covered up a lot of the true information about the Vietnam War. It was very unfavorable to U.S. policy and demonstrated that the Johnson administration had systematically lied not only to the public but also to Congress about the war. It was soon discovered that the person who had leaked the Pentagon Papers to the New York Times, along with other newspapers as well as some members of Congress, was a former employee of the Pentagon and the Rand Corporation named Daniel Ellsberg. Nixon was furious about the release of the Pentagon Papers and wanted to get Daniel Ellsberg. But why? Why was Nixon out to get Daniel Ellsberg? First of all, Ellsberg was arrested and faced charges of theft and espionage relating to his role in the Pentagon Papers controversy. Spoiler! After a mistrial in 1972, Daniel Ellsberg and his co-defendant, Anthony Russo, had all charges dismissed during a second trial due to the government's gross misconduct. But that still begs the question why Nixon was out to get Ellsberg when it seemed like he had a decent chance of going to jail for a long time. The second reason why it seemed so strange that Nixon wanted to nail Daniel Ellsberg was that the Pentagon Papers were very unflattering to the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, but had nothing to do with Nixon's presidency. The Pentagon Papers only went through 1967. Considering how much Nixon hated JFK and LBJ, he should have been happy. But Nixon was worried about Daniel Ellsberg because he did not know if Ellsberg had any information that could be embarrassing to Nixon. Supposedly, Nixon was worried that maybe Ellsberg had evidence of Nixon's involvement in the Anna Chenault affair I described earlier when Nixon interfered with the possible peace talks to end the Vietnam War in the fall of 1968. Whatever the reason, Nixon wanted the plumbers to discredit Daniel Ellsberg. And this was the crazy way they decided to do it. 
While working for the Rand Corporation, Ellsberg lived in Los Angeles. The plumbers discovered that Ellsberg had a psychiatrist in L.A., and they thought that maybe there was some damaging information about Ellsberg in his psychiatrist files. On September 3, 1971, the plumbers broke into the office of Dr. Lewis Fielding. They trashed the office, but did not find any files about Daniel Ellsberg. The plumbers used crowbars to open up the drawers in the filing cabinet. Dr. Fielding's filing cabinet, misshapen by the use of crowbars to open the drawers, is now on display at the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C. An even crazier caper for the plumbers involved the Brookings Institution. Brookings is a research group in Washington, D.C. In the summer of 1971, Nixon erroneously believed that there were documents in the Brookings offices which were damaging to him. Nixon's special counsel, Chuck Colson, was put in charge of the operation. Colson had an office in the West Wing. The short version of the story is that Colson and the plumbers working under him determined that it would be too difficult to break into Brookings and steal the classified documents. So Chuck Colson came up with a brilliant idea. The plumbers would firebomb the Brookings building. And during the chaos of the fire, the plumbers would enter the building dressed as firemen and break into the safe with the classified documents. The only reason why they didn't do it is because the details of this harebrained scheme reached people above Chuck Colson who realized it was insane and ordered him to call off the plan. When considering why Nixon did so many self-destructive things, you always have to keep in mind that Nixon was incredibly paranoid. This was a man who kept an enemies list. You heard me, an enemies list. In an August 16, 1971 memorandum from John Dean, who you'll hear about a lot later, John Dean explained the purpose of the enemies list. This memorandum addresses the matter of how we can maximize the fact of our incumbency in dealing with persons known to be active in their opposition to our administration. Stated a bit more bluntly, how we can use the available federal machinery to screw our political enemies. By using federal machinery, they meant things like having the IRS audit people on the enemies list. The enemies list contained names of some Democrat politicians, business people, journalists like Daniel Shore, and even the actor Paul Newman. Let's get back to the Watergate break-in. The June 17 incident, which led to the arrest of the five men, was actually the second time the plumbers broke into the Democratic National Headquarters. The plumbers had broken into the Democratic National Headquarters in the Watergate a few weeks earlier. The reason they went back on June 17 was because one of the listening devices they planted was not working, and they had failed to bug the phone of Democratic National Chairman Larry O'Brien on that first occasion. Almost immediately after the arrests, Richard Nixon and the people around him started a cover-up. The White House tried to downplay the Watergate break-in. A couple of days after the arrests at the Watergate, White House Press Secretary Ronald Ziegler referred to the incident as a third-rate burglary attempt and that certain elements may try to stretch this beyond what it is. That description of the break-in as a third-rate burglary became one of the lasting quotes from the Watergate scandal that is still used today whenever people are discussing Watergate. So how did Nixon get caught? Contrary to popular myth, it was not all because of the Washington Post and two young reporters named Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. 
Don't get me wrong, Woodward and Bernstein were instrumental in uncovering the Watergate scandal, but there were many others involved, including federal prosecutors, a federal grand jury, and congressional investigating committees. Let's start with Woodward and Bernstein. If you have never seen the movie All the President's Men, I would highly recommend it. Much better is the book with the same title. The book and the movie focus on Woodward and Bernstein investigating the Watergate scandal. I've always been certain that Bob Woodward had to be thrilled that a young Robert Redford was cast to play him in the movie. I know my wife agreed with that choice. The primary contribution by Woodward and Bernstein was to keep the story alive during the summer and fall of 1972. Those reporters were the first ones to see the significance of burglars going into the Democratic National Headquarters with listening devices. An even more important aspect about the five men arrested at Watergate was who they were. Four men were Cuban-Americans, but the fifth man was a guy named James McCord. McCord certainly raised suspicions because he had formerly been a member of the CIA, and in June 1972, he was the head of security for Nixon's re-election campaign. If you've ever seen or read anything about Watergate, you've often heard about CREEP. That was the derogatory acronym for the Committee to Re-elect the President, which was abbreviated CRP, but Nixon's opponents always referred to it as CREEP. The fact that James McCord, the head of security for the CRP, was arrested at the Watergate immediately raised red flags that perhaps the White House and or the Committee to Re-elect the President was involved. McCord's relationship to Nixon's re-election campaign was reported by the Washington Post a few days after the break-in. A few weeks later, Woodward and Bernstein reported that the grand jury investigating the burglary had sought testimony from two men who had worked in the Nixon White House, former CIA officer E. Howard Hunt and former FBI agent G. Gordon Liddy. Then on August 1, 1972, the Washington Post reported that a $25,000 check intended for Nixon's re-election campaign was deposited into the bank account of one of the Watergate burglars. Nixon's re-election campaign was headed by John Mitchell. During Nixon's first term, Mitchell served as Attorney General for the United States. At Nixon's request, Mitchell resigned as Attorney General to head the re-election campaign. On September 29, 1972, Woodward and Bernstein published an article in the Washington Post with the headline, Mitchell Controlled Secret GOP Fund. The article described how John Mitchell, while he was still serving as Attorney General, controlled a secret fund that was used to gather information about the Democrats. The famous part of that article reads as follows. Last night, Mitchell was reached by telephone in New York and read the beginning of the Post story. He said, All that crap you're putting in the paper? It's all been denied. Jesus. Katie Graham meaning Catherine Graham, publisher of the Washington Post, is going to get caught in a big fat ringer if that's published. Good Christ, that's the most sickening thing I've ever heard. Another big breakthrough from the Washington Post occurred on October 10, 1972, when Woodward and Bernstein reported that FBI agents had established that the Watergate break-in was part of a massive campaign of political spying and sabotage conducted on behalf of the Nixon re-election effort. 
Most of the information uncovered by Woodward and Bernstein was just through sheer hard work, but they also received some help from a mysterious informant who would only speak to Bob Woodward alone in very clandestine meetings in the middle of the night in a parking garage in Virginia. Woodward had promised this informant that he would never disclose his identity. The people working with Woodward at the Washington Post nicknamed the secret informant Deep Throat. That name came from the title of a pornographic movie in 1972 that had become famous. Nowadays, Deep Throat has become a term to designate any secret informer. For decades, people tried to figure out who was Deep Throat. True to his word, Bob Woodward refused to say. Finally, in 2005, a 91-year-old man named Mark Felt announced that he was Deep Throat during the Watergate scandal. Bob Woodward confirmed that it was true. So who was Mark Felt? He was an FBI agent who felt that he was passed over by Richard Nixon. For decades, J. Edgar Hoover was the director of the FBI. When Hoover died on May 2, 1972, Mark Felt was the deputy associate director of the FBI. Felt thought that he would be promoted to director of the FBI, but instead, Nixon appointed an outsider with no ties to the FBI, a man named L. Patrick Gray. Gray would only serve as the acting director of the FBI for less than a year. On April 27, 1973, Gray resigned as acting director of the FBI, after admitting that he destroyed documents given to him by John Dean within a few days of the Watergate break-in. Remarkably, those revelations published by the Washington Post did not hurt Nixon's popularity. On November 7, 1972, he was re-elected in one of the largest landslides in American history. As I told you earlier, he won 49 states in the Electoral College, but there was trouble on the horizon. Seven men had been indicted for the Watergate break-in. In addition to the five men arrested at the Watergate, Howard Hunt and Gordon Liddy were both indicted. I described Howard Hunt a little while ago. Now it's time to discuss the man who is by far the most colorful character in the Watergate scandal, G. Gordon Liddy. Liddy was an attorney. In the late 1950s and early 60s, he worked for the FBI. In June 1972, he was working for the Committee to Re-elect President Nixon with the title as Campaign Intelligence Chief. I am being polite when I say colorful. According to the Washington Post obituary of Liddy on March 30, 2021, Nixon described Liddy as a little nuts, and that Nixon complained to his chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, about Liddy saying, I mean, he just isn't well screwed on, is he? Shortly after the arrest of the five men at the Watergate, Liddy met with Nixon's special counsel, John Dean, to fill him in about the disastrous mission. At the end of their meeting, Liddy said to Dean, if someone wants to shoot me, just tell me what corner to stand on and I'll be there. John Dean was shocked by this offer and simply told Liddy, I don't think we've got to that point yet, Gordon. Of the seven men who were indicted for the Watergate break-in, five pled guilty. They were the four Cuban-Americans involved in the break-in, as well as Howard Hunt, who had coordinated the events. The only two who did not plead guilty were Gordon Liddy and James McCord. 
McCord was the member of the burglars arrested at the Watergate who was ex-CIA and the head of the security for the committee to re-elect the president. Liddy was eventually convicted in 1973 and given a 20-year prison term and a $40,000 fine. He ended up serving only four and a half years because in April 1977, Democrat President Jimmy Carter commuted Liddy's sentence to eight years. Carter explained that he reduced Liddy's sentence in the interest of equity and fairness based upon a comparison of Mr. Liddy's sentence with those of all others convicted in Watergate-related prosecutions. And Liddy was released early on parole. What about James McCord? He's the one that blew up the whole thing because in March 1973, McCord sent a letter to the judge presiding over the trial, Judge John Sirica. Among other items... McCord told Judge Sirica that there was political pressure applied to the defendants to plead guilty and remain silent and that the Watergate break-in was definitely not CIA-related. In February 1973, the Senate Watergate Committee was formed. Officially, it was titled the Select Committee on Presidential Campaign Activities. The chairman of the committee was a Democrat senator from North Carolina named Sam Irvin. Public hearings began in May 1973, and the committee's report was published in June 1974. The hearings were broadcast live on national television. The major turning point in the entire Watergate affair was the testimony of John Dean before the Senate Watergate Committee. John Dean was an attorney who served as special counsel to the president from July 1970 until April 1973. He was much younger than the rest of the people that were close to Richard Nixon. Dean was only 31 years old when he got his job in the White House. At the time of the publishing of this episode in March 2023, John Dean is still alive and regularly appears on TV news shows and has written several books. The three men who worked the closest with Nixon to cover up the Watergate scandal were John Dean, Nixon's chief of staff, Bob Halderman, and Nixon's advisor for domestic affairs, John Ehrlichman. In the spring of 1973, Nixon, along with those three advisors, were discussing the best way to try to save Nixon's presidency. It seemed that a fall guy was going to be necessary. John Dean came to the conclusion that Nixon wanted Dean to be that scapegoat. Dean decided that he would not be the fall guy and that he would cooperate with the prosecutors. Dean retained a criminal defense attorney named Charles Schaffer and tried to obtain immunity from the federal prosecutors and the Senate Watergate Committee. The prosecutors did not grant Dean immunity, but the Senate Watergate Committee did. In an attempt to look like he was cleaning house of all of those involved in the Watergate scandal, on April 30, 1973, Nixon announced the resignations of Bob Halderman and John Ehrlichman, and Nixon fired John Dean. On June 25, 1973, Dean began his testimony before the Senate Watergate Committee. Dean had taken weeks to prepare his testimony and read a 245-page statement into the record of the Senate Watergate Committee. The country was riveted to the hours of detailed testimony from John Dean outlining everything Dean had done in the Watergate cover-up and stating specifically how Nixon was involved. Probably the most famous phrase to come out of the Watergate hearings was when Republican Senator Howard Baker of Tennessee asked John Dean, what did the president know and when did he know it? 
That two-part question has since become a cliche when people are investigating scandals. Dean testified that he did not know if Nixon had prior knowledge of the Watergate break-in, but that Nixon was definitely involved in the cover-up immediately after the arrests. Dean testified that he personally spoke with Nixon about the Watergate cover-up at least 35 times. Although he was not positive, John Dean believed that Nixon had a secret recording system. Dean was a very smart man and figured out that he was being recorded because of a couple of instances when he was alone with Nixon. On one occasion, Nixon was asking Dean leading questions like an attorney does in cross-examination at trial. Dean thought that the only reason Nixon would ask questions in such a manner was because he was recording the conversation and that Nixon wanted to use this information to prove Dean was guilty and to use John Dean as the fall guy. On another occasion, when Dean was speaking alone with the president, Nixon got very quiet and whispered something to Dean. Since there was nobody else in the room, Dean figured that the only reason for Nixon to whisper was because the conversation was being recorded and Nixon did not want that particular statement caught on tape. Audio tapes would be very important because at this point in the investigation, it was Nixon's word against John Dean's. John Dean was the only one testifying that Nixon was involved. Dean told the Senate Investigating Committee that there may have been a recording system at the White House and other locations. After Dean told the staff of the Senate Watergating Committee that he believed there was a taping system, staff members regularly asked everybody who appeared before the Senate Committee if they knew of the existence of a secret taping system. The existence of the secret recording system was revealed when White House Deputy Assistant Alexander Butterfield testified to the Senate Watergate Committee on July 13, 1973, that indeed there was a secret taping system. This revelation sent shockwaves around the world. Why would Nixon be recording his own conversations in the Oval Office and elsewhere? Nixon wasn't the first president to secretly record his conversations. Presidents before him had recorded their conversations so they could have a permanent record of what was actually said. The first president to have a recording system was Franklin Roosevelt. Each president after that, meaning Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson, all had some kind of recording system. Between Nixon's election and his inauguration, Lyndon Johnson told Nixon about his recording system. Ironically, Nixon had Johnson's taping system removed, but he later changed his mind. Starting in February 1971, two years into his presidency, Alexander Butterfield oversaw the installation of taping systems in the Oval Office, on White House telephones, in the Cabinet Room, and in Nixon's private office in the Executive Office Building. The only reason he had the taping system dismantled was because it had become public. I now have to introduce you to the special prosecutor. In May of 1973, Attorney General Elliot Richardson appointed Archibald Cox as a special prosecutor to investigate the Watergate break-in and any related crimes. Archibald Cox subpoenaed some of the White House tapes. Nixon refused to produce them. Negotiations dragged on for months. When Archibald Cox would not back down on his demand for the tapes, Nixon ordered his attorney general to fire the special prosecutor. Think about how crazy this was. I'm sure that everybody who is being investigated for criminal activity would love the ability to fire the prosecutor 
who was investigating him or her. On Saturday, October 20, 1973, Nixon ordered Attorney General Elliot Richardson to fire Special Prosecutor Archibald Cox. Rather than carry out the president's order, Elliot Richardson resigned. The next person in line at the Justice Department was Deputy Attorney General William Ruckelshaus. He also resigned instead of firing Archibald Cox. The third most senior person in the Justice Department was Solicitor General Robert Bork. Bork agreed to carry out the president's wishes and fired the special prosecutor. October 20, 1973 became known as the Saturday Night Massacre. It created a firestorm of protests against Nixon. People who had previously supported Nixon now thought that he had crossed the line and should resign. Due to the public outcry, Nixon was forced to direct the Justice Department to appoint a new special prosecutor. Leon Jaworski became the new special prosecutor on November 1, 1973. On November 17, 1973, at a press conference in Orlando, Florida, Nixon uttered the most famous soundbite from the Watergate scandal and one of the most famous soundbites from any president. And I want to say this to the television audience. I made my mistakes, but in all of my years of public life, I have never profited, never profited from public service. I've earned every cent. And in all of my years of public life, I have never obstructed justice, and I think, too, that I can say that in my years of public life that I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. In November 1973, representatives for the White House revealed that there was an 18-and-a-half-minute gap on a tape of a meeting between Nixon and his chief of staff, Bob Halderman, which occurred on June 20, 1972. That meeting was only three days after the break-in at the Watergate. No good explanation was ever put forth as to why 18 and a half minutes of that tape had been erased. But Nixon's personal secretary, Rosemary Woods, claimed that she did it accidentally when she was transcribing the tape and she accidentally hit the wrong button on the tape machine when she answered the telephone. There's a famous photo of Ms. Woods demonstrating how this occurred, which shows that it was preposterous. Nobody believes that Rosemary Woods accidentally erased the 18 and a half minutes on that tape. She was just being a good soldier and taking the rap. It's never been discovered who actually erased the 18 and a half minutes on that tape, but historians generally believe it was probably Nixon himself because it was done in a sloppy manner and Nixon was not very good with technical items. We'll never know for sure. But the 18 and a half minutes erasure caused an uproar because it was presumed that Nixon and Halderman were discussing the Watergate arrests and what steps should be taken to cover up the matter. While the fight for the tapes dragged on, indictments were issued on March 1, 1974. Seven people were indicted for obstruction of justice relating to the Watergate affair, including Nixon's former chief of staff Bob Halderman, former Nixon advisor for domestic affairs John Ehrlichman, former Attorney General John Mitchell, and former Assistant Attorney General Robert Mardian. The grand jury named Nixon as an unindicted co-conspirator. To try to satisfy the demand for the White House tapes, the Nixon administration released 
1,200 pages of edited transcripts of the tapes on April 30, 1974. People were shocked at a lot of the language used by the president and his closest advisors. However, all swearing had been removed and was famously listed expletive deleted where any swear words had been. That term, expletive deleted, became a running joke. Eventually, the fight over the White House tapes went all the way to the United States Supreme Court. On July 24, 1974, the Supreme Court ruled that Nixon must provide the tapes and documents subpoenaed by Special Prosecutor Leon Jaworski. The ruling was unanimous, 8-0. One justice, William Rehnquist, disqualified himself because of his previous association with former Attorney General John Mitchell in the Justice Department. Nixon complied with the ruling of the Supreme Court and turned over the tapes to the special prosecutor. Up until then, Nixon had always claimed that he had first learned about the Watergate cover-up in March 1973 from John Dean. However, the release tapes contained what became known as the smoking gun. That was a recording of a meeting between Nixon and Chief of Staff Bob Haldeman on June 23, 1972, only six days after the Watergate break-in. On the tape, they are clearly discussing how to obstruct justice in the investigation of the Watergate affair. The two men were both worried about the FBI investigating the Watergate break-in. Nixon tells Haldeman to ask the CIA to contact the FBI and ask the FBI to stay the hell out of this investigation because of national security issues. Once people heard the smoking gun tape, which clearly demonstrated that Nixon had been involved in the cover-up less than one week after the break-in, all of his support ended. Congress had been considering impeachment. Article 1, Section 2 of the United States Constitution states that the House of Representatives shall have the sole power of impeachment. Article 1, Section 3 of the Constitution states that the Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. Simply stated, this means that the House of Representatives starts the proceedings and impeaches the president. Then, there is a trial in the Senate with the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court presiding. Article 1, Section 3 of the Constitution also requires for conviction in the Senate a two-thirds vote. Since there are 100 senators, 67 need to vote guilty to convict a president in an impeachment trial and remove the president from office. The basis for impeachment is found in Article 2, Section 4 of the Constitution, which reads in total as follows. The president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. At the end of July 1974, the House Judiciary Committee approved three articles of impeachment against Nixon for obstruction of justice, abuse of power, and contempt of Congress. After the House Judiciary Committee approved those three articles of impeachment, it was then necessary for a vote of the full House of Representatives. Spoiler, that vote never occurred. Before I explain why the full House never voted on articles of impeachment, let's first look at what an impeachment of the president or his resignation would mean. In 1967, the 25th Amendment to the Constitution was ratified. This was only six years before it would first be used. 
Prior to the ratification of the 25th Amendment, when a president died in office, the vice president became president. The office of vice president would remain empty until the next scheduled election. If a vice president died, there was also the same situation where the office of vice president would remain empty until the next election. There were several times in history where the U.S. had no vice president. According to the National Archives, there's been a total of approximately 30 eight years of American history when there was no vice president. Shocking, isn't it? Eight presidents have died in office. Abraham Lincoln, James Garfield, William McKinley, and John Kennedy were all assassinated. And William Henry Harrison, Zachary Taylor, Warren Harding, and Franklin Roosevelt all died of natural causes. In each of those situations, the vice president was elevated to president and then there was no vice president for the remainder of the term. In addition to the eight presidents who died in office, we have had seven vice presidents die in office. George Clinton, Elbridge Gerry, William Rufus King, Henry Wilson, Thomas Hendricks, Garrett Hobart, and James Sherman. In addition, John C. Calhoun resigned his vice presidency because of political differences with President Andrew Jackson. The reason I'm bringing all this up is because of a crazy situation that occurred during the Watergate crisis. Spiro Agnew was elected as Nixon's vice president in 1968 and was then re-elected as vice president in 1972 in Nixon's landslide win over George McGovern. In a normal situation, Agnew would become president if Nixon was either forced out of office by impeachment or resignation. But in a wacky turn of events... Agnew resigned the vice presidency on October 10, 1973. The reason I find this so strange is because it had nothing to do with the Watergate scandal. In the midst of this giant constitutional crisis throughout 1973 and 1974, based upon Watergate, a totally separate scandal arose. A federal investigation of political corruption in Maryland found evidence that Agnew had been taking bribes from his days as governor of Maryland and continued taking bribes and or kickbacks while vice president of the United States. To avoid prison time, Agnew made a deal with the Justice Department whereby he pled nolo contendere, meaning no contest, to one charge of income tax evasion and resigned the vice presidency. With the entire country focusing on the Watergate scandal, this issue with Spiro Agnew came completely out of nowhere. This brings us to the 25th Amendment to the Constitution, which had just been ratified in 1967. Section 2 of the 25th Amendment reads in total as follows. Whenever there is a vacancy in the office of the vice president, the president shall nominate a vice president who shall take office upon confirmation by a majority vote of both houses of Congress. Pursuant to the 25th Amendment, Richard Nixon nominated Gerald Ford to be the new vice president. Ford was confirmed overwhelmingly by both the Senate and the House of Representatives. Ford had served in the House of Representatives from 1949 until he became vice president in December 1973. Gerald Ford is the only person to serve as President of the United States who was never elected in a national election. In fact, he was never even elected in a statewide election since he never served as Governor or Senator of Michigan. The largest group to ever elect Gerald Ford was the 5th Congressional District of Michigan. 
When Ford was being considered for the vice presidency, everybody in Congress, the White House, and throughout the country realized that this man might very well become president if Nixon was forced out of office. As I mentioned earlier, the full House of Representatives never voted on the three articles of impeachment. Why was that? It's because Nixon resigned. And why did he resign? Because Republicans in Congress determined that Nixon had to go. On August 7, 1974, Senator Barry Goldwater of Arizona, House of Representatives Minority Leader John Rhodes, also of Arizona, and Senate Minority Leader Hugh Scott of Pennsylvania arranged a meeting with Nixon. All three of those men were Republicans. In fact, Barry Goldwater had been the Republican nominee for president in 1964. Goldwater did most of the talking with Nixon. He did not tell Nixon that he had to resign, but he did explain to Nixon that he would surely lose an impeachment trial in the Senate. To survive an impeachment trial, Nixon would have to get 34 votes in the Senate. Goldwater told Nixon that he could count on no more than 15 votes for acquittal in a trial in the Senate. Supposedly, Goldwater advised Nixon that Goldwater himself would vote to convict. The next day, August 8, 1974, Nixon gave a televised speech announcing that he would resign the presidency at noon the following day, meaning August 9. It is rare that you see a person truly become self-aware. But at the very last moments of his presidency, Nixon understood that he was the cause of his own downfall. In a goodbye address to his staff at the White House, Nixon said the following. Always give your best. Never get discouraged. Never be petty. Always remember, others may hate you. But those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. And then you destroy yourself. After saying goodbye to his staff, Nixon and his wife Pat walked out to the south lawn of the White House with Gerald Ford and his wife Betty. The Nixons boarded a military helicopter and left the White House grounds. On that same day, after Nixon flew away in the helicopter, Gerald Ford was sworn in as president in the White House. Ford then spoke to the nation where he famously said, My fellow Americans, our long national nightmare is over. Our constitution works. Our great republic is a government of laws and not of men. Here the people rule. One month later, President Ford gave Richard Nixon a full pardon. That's it for today. Please subscribe to this podcast. Please like this and my other episodes. Ratings and likes greatly help with the placement of podcasts on particular apps. If you're listening on an app like Spotify or Apple, which allow for ratings, I would greatly appreciate a five-star rating. Please tell your friends, relatives, and coworkers, word of mouth is the best way to increase the audience for this podcast. Please check out my website, historyanalyze.com. Thank you for listening. Catch you next episode.